Welcome to the Harwood Hustle powered by PGC Basketball. We believe in the value of a coach. We're here to educate, empower, and encourage you to lead like never before. This episode is part of a two-part series with TJ and Sam as they continue to share what it looks like to execute better practices. In part two today, they'll cover off building habits, implementing a games approach, raising competitiveness, and how and when to pivot your practice plan. Before we start, a quick word from Manawatsa. Coach, would you like to have a team full of great shooters next season? We've partnered with our friends at NOAA to bring to you the Hoops app, a free app to help your players measure the trajectory and arc of their shot. They'll get immediate feedback after every make or miss so that they can course correct and become a better shooter faster. Have your players download the Hoops app at thehoopsapp.com forward slash PGC today so that you can have a team full of better shooters next season. All right, welcome to the Hardwood Hustle. Today we have part two of how to make better practices. Just going to recap part one really quickly where we talked about focus. We talked about the points of precision or points of emphasis, POP or POEs. We talked about intangibles, ensuring that uh, those get right as we know practice can go awry in so many different directions if just the the mind's not right, the heart's not right. So you got to make sure that is right. And then the communication that you got to have. There's multiple levels of communication and people that have to communicate. But like anything else, if communication breaks down, you're likely to have a breakdown in the relationship or relate and breakdown in practice. So we got to make sure we're communicating well. And Sam, today we're going to jump into the second part of this, and we're going to talk about the next four. And I'll go ahead and give you the next four. So the next four of this, we've got to make sure that our habits, particularly precision, you know, the way we do anything is the way we do everything. And we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Number six is the ability to manipulate games. You know, how do I give and take away? Um, There's a lot of different names, I feel like, out there for this. You know, the games approach. um, we call it weapon training a lot in our practice, but we'll talk about how to manipulate games to ensure that uh, not only are they having fun, but they're learning, but you're also manipulating the games the proper way. And then the, the seventh thing is ensuring that there's a high level of competition in your practice and everything that you do. And number eight is the ability to pivot in practice. You know, sometimes our best laid plans don't always go as we hoped, but I think good coaches have the ability to pivot throughout the course of of a practice and make sure that every day counts. So, Sam, let's dive into those. Let's talk about the first one, habits, particularly, you know, just things like precision, making sure that those habits, you know, I know that I've heard you use it a lot, but the way you do anything is the way you do everything, which, you know, I think basically what that's saying is, is just you want to have good habits and, and habits are super important. Uh, to build upon and make sure you're getting 1% better every day. A lot of these quotes that we've used before, but explain to us uh, why is it so important to have good habits in practice? Yeah, TJ, and I, I just want to say before answering that question, just a reminder, like why practice matters so much. This is a time where you spend so much time with your team and you're building out your your offense and your defensive systems and and really your culture and how you're going to, you know, grow as a team and communicate with each other and, and relate to one another. So, you know, that's why it's so important, but specific, uh, talking specifically about the habits, you know, this is ultimately, you know, you, you watch a team play, you watch players play and in the biggest moments in the most pressurized games, we revert back to our most deeply held habits 
And that's a, that's a bit of a Navy SEAL mantra. It's something we say a lot at PGC as well. But in our, in the most intense moments and the most pressurized moments, we revert back to our most deeply held habits. And those habits are just something we do without thinking about. And so it's important as a coach to get really clear on what habits you want and the habits on offense when you catch the ball, like peeking at the rim, habits on defense of, you know, sprinting back or being in a stance or communicating your intangible habits. What happens when a mistake happens, when you airball a shot, when a ref misses a call, when a teammate gets on to you, when an opponent talks trash, those, those are all habits that just come out. And so they're critical if you want to be the best version of yourself as a player and if you want to chase championships as a team. Yeah, gosh, there's so many directions we can go with habits, you know, I mean, offensively, defensively, personality, like there's just so many different habits. And there's a lot of good resources out there on habits. You know, I know that, uh, you know, you've read the James Clear Atomic Habits, which is a really good book and a lot of really helpful ways to grow your habits, to stack habits. Um, But really, we are a sum of our habits, you know, And, and many times I've been guilty of this myself, but I think that you know, somebody might be frustrated with their offense or frustrated with their defense or frustrated with their players. And, you know, I think what they're saying a lot of times, rather than sometimes the scheme or or what they're trying to accomplish, they really don't have good enough habits. You know, everything looks better with good habits. Your offense looks better when you have good habits. Your defense looks better when you have good habits. And I think it's really important to determine what are the keystone habits of anything you're going to do. What are, the, what are the primary habits of your player development? What are the primary habits of your systems and strategy? What are the primary habits of your leadership, of your culture? Um, what are your habits as a master teacher? Because in the end, your habits are really going to determine everything. Yeah, I mean, this is in life, too. It, for me, this is, I mean, I, I love the topic of habits, TJ. I, I try to automate. I don't, let me back up. I don't try. Over the over the course of my life, I automate. I want to automate my mornings. I want to know that when I wake up, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to motivate myself. I don't have to inspire myself. But I have certain things automated, such as you know my my body, my mind, my emotional my my um, emotional being. All those things are so important to me being the best person I can be, which allows me to be the best husband and father and coach leader. And so with, uh, let's just give coaches a couple tangible things. So on offense, maybe the best example, I was at a clinic recently and I was sharing this with a group of coaches. When you watch Villanova play, let's use that as an example. It's very clear what habits they work on. And the habits are every time those players catch, they are ready to shoot the ball. Now, some of them can't shoot, but they catch ready to shoot, giving the illusion to the defense that they might shoot. And that defensive player, out of their own habit, may close out and they drive the close out. But when you watch Villanova play, they catch ready to shoot. When they get to the paint in traffic, they play off two feet. They play powerful. They have great spacing. So it's very clear. And so, coaches, I guess the question for you is, what habits are most important to you and your players and your team on offense? If we came and watched you play, would it be really clear? So that's offense. On defense, what, what's important? Do you want a, a group of five players talking and in a stance? Uh, do you want the habit of pressuring the ball or do you want the habit of being in the gap? 
Like you got to get really clear on what habits you want. And then you do have to work on it every day. It has to be, you have to do those every days, the every days, you know, and I, I don't know if you still do this TJ with your team, but like, you know, grab and peek or catching peek at the rim. It's a, I know we'll get into games approach later with um, how, how you bring some of these to life. But again, I think those are some tangible things that coaches can take and put into their practices. Yeah. And I think that uh, another tangible thing for coaches is really identify what your habits are. I recommend you start with just like three habits. Like here are the three habits that we value more than anything else on offense. Here's the three habits we value more than anything else on defense. Even in your intangibles, here's the three habits we, you know, we value more than anything else. And eventually you can stack habits. You know, when you build a habit, you can add another habit. Where I see it go wrong a lot of times is where coaches pick 10, 12, 15 habits and they're average at best at all of them. And I think there's a lot more value in getting really good at your cornerstone or keystone habits and then adding or stacking on top of those habits, you know, putting one to bed and making sure our team just does this on a regular basis. And then maybe you add another one after that. But if you go in with too many habits or or too many things that you value, oftentimes none of them get the attention that's necessary. So I do think it's really important. And I know there's a lot of ways to do it, but for me, I think it's been most effective for our team when we know these are our habits. And then we test those habits. Like, are they showing up in practice? Are they showing up in games? Like, they're they're really not a habit if people don't default to them. If they're not actually happening, we may say it's important, but it's not important until it really becomes a habit. Yeah, and habits, I mean, again, we can – we can probably have a whole episode on habits, but you might have the habit, uh, you know, let's talk about your bench. When a player comes off the court, we're the habit of standing up and, you know, high-fiving that player. Uh, the habit of how we're, how we're sitting during timeouts, what it, where assistant coach is doing during timeout. Like, you know, those, those can fall under the umbrella of habits. So, yeah, define what you want, coaches, and simplify less is more. And I think I think that's the best approach you can take. And then you level up from there once you establish a few. Yeah. You know, and if you wanted something even more concrete, I mean, what if you just took our, you know, PGC coaching, we have our, you know, our um, our blueprint. And in those we have the five different components. And what if you just had your three primary habits for leadership? Like these are the three things we want to happen every day. Our three primary habits for culture uh, our culture how we have these habits that we do every single day like we practice gratitude the habit of gratitude and we constantly work at gratitude never met a, a thankful team that uh, wasn't fun to coach and then you as a master teacher like what are the three habits that i dominate every time that make me a better teacher what are the three habits in my systems and strategies and you might even divide that out with offense and defense or uh, whatever it might be. And the three habits of our player development, like these are three things you can see every one of our players do on a regular basis. That might be really helpful. So let's dive into number six here, manipulate games. And this is talked about in so many different ways. Um, there's a lot of ways to do this and put constraints, uh, take away, give extra advantages, but really the games approach. And, you know, I personally have been, 
kind of on the fence about the games approach. And here's why is because I've seen so many people use it well and I've seen so many people use it poorly, you know, and used poorly. I think it's like, oh, let's just learn through games. But we really don't know how to teach through games. And and so players are kind of put out there and they may or may not learn the things that you want them to learn uh, based on age, stage, appropriateness. But the people that do a really good job of, of manipulating games and using the games approach to make teams better, I think they they understand how to give things, take things away, change the game, manipulate it in a way that you're really getting your team to focus on the things that you want them to focus on. Yeah, this is where I think the science and the art meet at a, at a really good place. Because there's a, there's a phrase in games approach that says, let the game be the teacher. Let the game be the teacher, meaning, okay, we're going to play this four-on-four, this one-on-one game, and that game in itself will teach the player what they need to learn. And in a, in a way, yes, that's very true. But like you said, TJ, I think the most common mistake, and I know this because I've made it, you know, I'd say six, seven years ago when I started taking more of what I, what we call a games approach to to everything I was doing as a coach, player development, small group workouts to team practices and believe wholeheartedly that let, let me let me actually say this too before going down that road. If you walk into your practice and you said to your players, hey, we're going to work on defense today. You guys want to do these drills or would you like to play this three-on-three and four-on-four game that we're going to do? 100% of your players will raise their hand and say, we want to play the games, coach. It's going to, I mean, I've asked this question. It's going to happen. And why? Okay, so games approach is great for engagement. Players are more engaged. And then number two, I think you get more competitive with it. So those are two big wins. And if they're more engaged, they're going to be more energized. They're more energized. There's going to be higher performance. And so, but where the mistake is made and where I made it at one time was not the art of the coaching is, you know, when a game's going on, either at the end of the game or in the middle of it, pointing out the things that are going on so players can see it. Assuming the player just feels it and experiences it and they're going to learn from it is a is just a mistake. So that's where the art meets the science. Yes. If you're playing a three-on-three game and you have to go off two feet in the paint in traffic, they're going to get better when they uh, don't get the bucket when they score off one foot on a, on a layup. So they're going to get, they're going to learn, Hey, we're working on that. But the art of the coaching is really important. Uh, as you mentioned, TJ. And I think when, you know, you, you use a lot of games approach, which I think could be really healthy. I think the one thing we underestimate sometimes is, you know, coaches have limited time. And I, I've found that the games approach, while a great teacher of the game, it takes more time because you have to let them go through, then you have to let them explore, then they have to pull out the lessons they've learned from the game, then you've got to adjust. And, you know, we have limited time. And so the ability to manipulate the games properly is one of the things that will help you use your time more efficiently. And I think it's worth spending time uh, and learning how and figuring out what manipulations of the game actually produce the most fruit. And that can go a lot of different directions. But because we have a lack of time, and because I think the game's approach, while really good, does take more time, the better you become as a coach at manipulating those games to get to a place of discovery faster 
I think is a better use of time. And I think as a coach, we're always trying to sharpen our skills on how to best manipulate games. And, you know, I think the best people I've seen use games approach um, can really quickly identify what things need to be, um, what restraints need to be added to the game or what advantages need to be given to the offense or defense to really make the game better, more efficient, and to be able to really get quicker to the point or be able to get quicker to the point of what you're trying to learn or help them discover through the game's approach. And, and, and that's really good manipulation of the game is when you can be efficient with it. Yeah, and, and let's, you know, we know a lot of coaches know what we're talking about here when we talk about, but I want to give a couple examples to coaches in the dark or maybe just give some more tools in their tool belt. You know, you could play a, a five-on-five game where, you know, we do this a lot. It's a 5-3-1 scoring system. You get five points if you score off no dribble, three points if you score off one dribble, and one point if you score off two or more dribbles. In any game, there's flaws to it. There's no perfect game. So sometimes the best playing basketball is, you know, shot fake or rip and go and get to the paint on two dribbles off two feet and finish. So we recognize you only get one point. But the the outcome we're chasing in a 5-3-1 game is how to create shots for others, either a catch-and-shoot three or feed the post and Laker cut, score it, or pass and cut or screen and curl. So getting shots off the catch is is the goal in that. Um, you know, another way to game, you know, games within the game, you know, if I have a point guard who trying to improve uh, their ability to attack and, and finish with their weak hand, you know, we may, I may pull them aside privately and say, hey, this game I want you to, uh, in practice this segment I want you to work on, you can only score left-handed layups and you can only pass with your left hand. Nobody else knows that, but it's a way for me to, you know, th- you know, pull that player aside and work on a, a concentrated area of their game. Because as you can get as creative as you want, I would caution you if you do a games approach and you put constraints on it, you know, not to put 14 constraints or even four constraints, you know, keep it at one or two starting out and, and load in your constraints as you go. Another mistake is they put all these constraints and players can't even remember, wait, what, what do I, how many points do I get for that? Oh, what do I have to do here? And then you kind of lose the, the original focus of a game's approach. Yeah. And I think that probably the one I use the most super simple, but limiting the number of dribbles, the whole game changes when you go from four dribbles to three dribbles to two dribbles to one dribble to zero dribbles and, you know, all of the games teach different things. But I, I think using your dribble as a weapon rather than something just to play with and explore with, I think, is one of the most uh, useful manipulations of a game that we use. And I think that's easy to change what you can get from the offense or the defense by limiting number of dribbles. All right, let's dive into the seventh one right here, which is competitiveness. You know, how do we constantly make competitive practices and marrying, you know, teaching skills, skill development, all the things that we have to learn, but making sure practice stays highly competitive. And I think this is uh, also an art here is how do we make it competitive without making it fake and I think there's ways to make practice competitive, whether it's within a drill by a certain number, um, more points for an offensive rebound can make the, the other team go to the offensive rebound, which makes you better defensively, which creates a little bit of competition between offense and defense. 
there's also ways to make pra- practice more competitive within the whole of the practice. Let's say in today's practice, there's seven, seven different games or, or, or drills that you're going to play, and it's blue versus white the entire day. And every time you win that particular drill, uh, you get a point. And at the end of practice, somebody will have won, you know, seven nothing, six one, five two, four, three, whatever it might be. And there's the long-term competitiveness of practice that everything adds up to points. Competitiveness in stats, you know, where individuals are statted or teams are statted based on certain things. You're competing to, to get the most loose balls. There's so many ways to make practice competitive. I do think it takes some organization, uh, but the more organized you are, the easier I think it is to make more competitive environments. And what are your thoughts on competitiveness in practice? I spent a ton of time on this over the last five, six years. And uh, to give a quick story, like about probably five years ago or six years ago, we would do end of the year surveys with our players, kind of official surveys they had to fill out. And also, um, you know, just one-on-one face-to-face and we'd ask them, hey, coming out of your experience in, in our program, what are three or four things that you uh, you feel like you got significantly better? And you and you heard some good things like, you know, I, I learned how to be a better leader. I learned how to um, shoot the ball better. I learned how to communicate on defense. Some things you'd want to hear from your players who we'd work with for three months. One thing that but then I would get these calls, TJ from, you know, high school kid in the season who said, you know, get the text or the call and say, coach, I, I'm frustrated. You know, I, you know, I'm the sixth man. I don't, I don't understand why, you know, coach doesn't play me more. And my question was always, the very first question I asked the player was, are you competing at your highest level in practice? And if the answer is no, then all bets are off. Meaning, until you compete at your very greatest level, like we we can't we can't get we got to do that before we even talk about playing time. And so I made a switch and a concentrated, intentional behind is is start making practices more competitive, having winners and losers. Lisa and I think had a few uh, nice discussions over the years about this, but. And I started studying Anson Dorrance, who's the women's soccer coach in North Carolina, who learned under Dean Smith. And Dean Smith charted everything in practice, like you said. And so how do you make a or how do you build better leaders? You put them in positions to be to be a leader, to lead. How do you build players who work through adversity better? Give them adversity to work through it. How do you develop better competitors? Put them in an environment where they get to compete. And now how we bring that to life is I think we can dive into that. But any any thoughts on what I just shared on that before going into some tangible ways? Yeah, I think that really there might be more. But the first thing that came to mind in breaking up the competition, I think there's different levels. One, compete against yourself. And so how do you compete against yourself? I think stats and charting things is one way to compete against yourself. Shoot a higher percentage get more loose balls, turn the ball over less. So I think that's one one type of competition you can create. A second type of competition that you can create is whatever the focus is, whatever the drill is. If it's a shooting drill, make a certain number. If it's a competitive drill, play to a certain number, whatever. How do I make each drill competitive? 
So compete against myself, each individual drill competitive, and three, the overall practice having winners and losers. So, you know, the practice kind of reflecting the game, somebody's going to win practice today. And so I, I think if you think that's just an easy way to break up competition, compete against self, compete within the drill, compete the overall practice. And for coaches, that might be a way to organize your competition and making sure, you know, one, two, or even all three of those things are happening every day in practice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the approach that we've taken. And I think like we got to we got to give players the why behind it, too. And them knowing why competing matters so much. And there is a difference in playing hard and competing. And a lot of players think they're playing hard and they might be. And it's it's even hard. You know, if you ask a coach, hey, how do you define competing? A lot of coaches have a hard time you know, articulating it. And I've spent a lot of time on it and it, and I have, you know, it's, it is hard to articulate, you know, one of the best ways I can say it is if there's a loose ball and TJ, you and I are going after the loose ball and I dive on the floor, I sprint, I dive on the floor, I'm playing hard, but you dive on the floor and you get the ball. Like you, you competed. I played hard, but there's a whole, there's a level up in competing and, Getting players to understand that, show them film clips, show them, you know, players on TV that, that do it at a high level and what it looks like. And and competing to me has got to be a core value in, in any program. It's got to be a com- core value in your practices uh, if you know want to get out the best. And so I also say it like this. If we're in practice playing one on one. I'm being a great teammate, TJ, if I compete at my highest level. If I can beat you 11 to 0, I need to beat you 11 to 0. You know why? That's being a great teammate because that's going to elevate your level of competitiveness. If And if it doesn't, you'll continue to get beat 11-0, and you got to make a decision about your your level of commitment to competing and to our, to our team. So I think that is so important like for coaches to articulate the why – and it's something I even I hope I, I hope this is true. What I'm saying, I think I talk about it every single day. I think I talk about it before practice, during practice, after practice, before games. Um, now, there's a whole there's a whole thing we can get into about how you create a healthy competition where you don't pit player against player. Now, that's an important thing that sometimes I think coaches do. Um, and by the way, let's talk about what competing is not, because a lot of players. This might be one that coaches want to play in front of their teams, but this is what players think competing is, dunking on a guy and flexing, hitting a three and doing three fingers to your head, uh, you know, making a play and, and beating your chest and it's all about you. Like, no, that's just, that's just you showing bravado. That doesn't mean you're a competitor. It's like some people say Russell Westbrook, man, he's a competitor. Why? Because he dunked on somebody and, and mean mugged him? Well, I just watched him run back on defense and not give any effort. That's not competing. No, he just that's just you flexing on somebody. That that does not make you a competitor. So I think players get mixed messages of being a dog. A lot of coaches use this dog stuff. And I, you know, yeah, be a dog, but like we're we're not defining it well and we're giving players uh the wrong blueprint or the wrong model of what a real competitor is. You know what a real competitor is too? If somebody shows up to practice 30 minutes early and puts in extra work, a real competitor is their coach coming, calling them over 
them hustling over and, and looking the coach in the eye and taking the feedback because they want to be better. That's a competitor. So I don't know. I could, I could keep going. I get fired up about this. Uh, but I think that's important that we define it the right way for players. Yeah. My dad always used to say that uh, if you want to see how competitive somebody is, watch them run back on defense. And, uh, and I, it's just a really good gauge. And if you want to see how selfless somebody is, watch them run back on defense. And I often tell that to my players, like it's, it's easy to show up as competitive or, you know, all those different areas and, and when the when the spotlight's there. But very little, little is ever seen or earned when you sprint back on defense and you find real players. And the last thing I would say about competitive practices is coaches pay attention to it. You know, winners win. And if they constantly win in practice, even though they don't have the best shot, even though they don't have – they're likely to win in games. And I, don't, I think sometimes we give it lip service, like, yeah, compete, you know, whatever. And then we have a player who's a star and they end up losing every day. But what we fail to recognize is, you know, look, they might be more skilled. They might be a little bit better, but they don't win. And you want to get them, if they're the best player, you want to get them to a place where they win. But pay attention to who wins regularly in practice and, and likely somebody you want in the lineup if, if they are somebody that's constantly winning in practice. So, Sam, any other thoughts on competitiveness before we jump to the last one? Well, a couple quick ones. So, this is something we've done recently in the last two to three years that I, I think has value. If we're playing, if the red and the white team are playing three on three, and it's a four minute FIBA game, if if there's a, if it's a four minute FIBA game, excuse me, and you put you put a consequence at the end of it. So whatever you lose by, you run by. And so the point is, if the blue team's up 23 to, to 4 with one minute left, a lot of times if, if you lose and you just, you know, you have five push-ups or, you know, maybe it's just for bragging rights or you run one sprint, there's no incentive. They know they're not going to come back. But if, what, if, if they can cut a 19-point deficit to nine and shave off 10 sprints at the end, it's going to be more competitive from beginning to end and there's different coaches that have different feelings on that. But I, I did, I do find that to be uh, a nice tool to use to keep, teach competing. And, you know, another one is like, if you're struggling with younger players to, to fight and compete all the way to the whistle or all the way to the end of possession, we'll play some one-on-one -on -one games, TJ, where say you're guarding me and I, and I drive it and I make a layup. The possession's not over until you physically get the rebound, even off a make. So I could grab it out of the net and score again and score again. And we might play to 11 points at each basket. And so it just teaches a little more aggression, a little more fight, a little more competitiveness. Those are two things in practices that I think coaches can use. Yeah, I like that. That's good stuff there, Sam. So let's jump to number eight right here. Let's talk about the pivot. Uh, the last one of, of the final eight to make your practices better is the ability to pivot. You know, I can't tell you how many times, and this is what you were talking about a minute ago, the art and the science. I mean, I think this is the art of coaching is, you know, sometimes we make a practice plan and, and we thought it out and it's really good. And then we get in there and it's something's missing. You know, maybe it's just not competitive enough. Maybe 
there's a change or direction needed because of players that go down. Maybe there's just so many reasons that you might have to pivot in a practice to make sure that you accomplish the main things. And I think this is one of those things where a lot of coaches are just wired different. Some people just think, oh, here's the practice plan. We're sticking to it no matter what. And then there's other people that are like, man, I'm totally flexible. Let's just see the way this practice goes and, and we'll morph and we'll pivot as practice goes on. But I think either one can be a little bit dangerous. And I think really just making reads about good times to pivot in practice and to recognize, man, my team might need a little bit of this. And just identifying a couple of places that you know I might pivot our practices, I might have under overestimated how we're feeling, you know, like our legs are tired. Um, you know, we've been going pretty hard, like the energy's dropping. And, you know, one of the things is like the energy's dropping in practice. Sometimes we can just say, well, it's the player's fault. There's not good energy. There's not whatever, but there's a reality to it. Basketball season is long and there are times when energy can get lower. And what do you do to bring the energy back? Because Again, one of the, mo- the most important pivots for me is like I always want to make sure our work is quality work. I want to make sure we are getting better. And a lot of my pivots happen when I feel like we're going through the motions. And that could be because we've done it too long. We've done it too many times. They're too tired. Uh, maybe the pivot is to do something that energizes them because they're lacking energy. And I got to pivot to make sure that we pick up their energy. But I think paying attention to that and, and being able to to be flexible um, enough to make changes and to pivot to make your practice better because you want every minute to count when you're there with your team. Yeah. Two quick thoughts is there there is a challenge in a practice, TJ, and maybe you can speak to it is there's sometimes maybe a, there's a low on energy or focus and the right thing is to pivot as a coach. But what about the times when the focus energy aren't there and we're working on how to defend ball screens and you as a coach need to double down and say, Hey, we're going to get this thing right. And we're not pivoting out of this. We're, we're going to continue on this path and keep working you know, because there is that time too. And that's that, again, that's the art of leadership and, and reading the room and seeing what your team needs. But sometimes as coaches, we bend a little too much um, and we, we bail on something. So that's, yeah, I'll stop there. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I liken it to like parenting, right? Like some people are just wired a particular way. Let's just say that you're parenting your kids and like, they're going to do this no matter what, because I said so, you know, like you can go into a practice bullheaded like that. And sometimes it is the right thing. You just have to do hard things and you have to fight through things and you have to get right. But then there's other times when, look, I might need to take a softer approach to this. I might need to have a conversation around this. I might need to pull back a little on this. Same thing when you're parenting your child. Like if your only approach is to be bullheaded and make sure they do everything all the time. Look, there's consequences in the long run to that. And opposite of that, if you're always just flexible and every time it doesn't feel good, then, well, that's okay. We'll just quit. We'll just give this up. There's consequences to that too. And, you know, in my, in my experience, uh, both in parenting and, and in coaching or practice, like both and like there are times when you just need to go through it because you need to go through it and you need to push through it and you need to learn the lesson of sucking it up and, and whatever. And there's also times when going with that approach is actually not the right approach. And um, 
you know, I, I think that goes back to reading the room a lot and, and reading like, man, one of the common things that I might see uh, with our team as a pivot is to shorten something. This is just getting too long. We're going on for you know a, a period of time, and I might just need to say we just need to end this here. Maybe it was my fault. Maybe the teaching wasn't clear, and we spent way longer on this thing, and something else is going to get cut out of practice and be sacrificed because of this. And maybe I just need to pivot and say, you know, I know we allotted fifteen minutes. We're six minutes in. This isn't going well. I'm going to end it right here and put our focus somewhere else and readjust and do it tomorrow. That's another type of pivot. The only It doesn't just have to be a pivot based on emotions of your players. There's a lot of reasons to have to pivot, you know, during the course of practice. Yeah. Another way to go about it, coaches who are listening, is talk to your players. You know, I oftentimes I go to our best player or play a couple players who are in the best shape, which, by the way, is often one and the same um because they work the hardest but I go to them maybe during a practice beginning of practice at any point even before practice and just gauge where they're at hey how do you how do you think the how do you think the team's doing how do you think the guys are doing anything that you think we need more work on you know you're coming off a, a game or a weekend of of games and so asking your players and again, you got to know your players. I'm, I'm not, you know, you got to know which players to ask and do they have a good uh, pulse on it and what's their maturity level. I don't, I don't know that you always, if you're coaching fifth graders, you know, that are going to have a great gauge. But yeah, ask, ask your players. And, you know, this is critical. Sometimes the best decision you can make in practice is to stop it early. You're having a great practice and you're an hour in and things are flowing and, and uh, just go ahead and, and stop it. Keep them hungry for ne- for the next one. Yeah, that's a and, good one. That's, that's a tool to use. Yeah, that's a good one because a lot of times, it, it, you know, look, we 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 put in the work and we got done what we needed to get done. And I think it's much like us. Like you go to the office and nobody likes being there from nine to five just because they have to be there from nine to five, right? If you went in there and you had a phenomenal day of production and you're done at three, why not be done? You know, because there are going to be days when the clock hits five and you're not done and you have to stay till six. And I think both of those things, you know, can happen. And the pivot, again, I just want to reiterate, it's not always because of the way players feel. I think there's been times when we created a new drill based on something we're not doing well as a team. And we go into that drill and we realize this is a phenomenal drill. We're actually going to stay in this much longer than we thought because we're really getting something out of it. And we pivot and cut something else out of practice and vice versa. We've created a drill, gone in thinking it would really help our team. Halfway through the drill, we realize this wasn't created well. We're not actually getting what we thought out of this. And we cut it off short. And so some of it's just practice design and being able to pivot out of things if you're one of those coaches that tries new things like I do. I try new things a lot. And sometimes it leads me to pivoting to staying with it longer. Sometimes it leads to staying with it shorter because it's not that good. And so, again, a a multitude of reasons that you might have to pivot over the course of practice. And I think you have to have some level of flexibility. You know, hopefully your plan's really good and you've done your work beforehand. But there are going to be times when you do need to pivot, whether it's because of the players, because of your own practice planning, because of numerous things that could happen. Um, over the course of practice. And so you've got to be able to do that, do that as well. Cut it short, 
perhaps go a little bit longer, whatever you need to do to make sure that your team gets where they need to get. So, hey, Sam, I hope that uh, this was helpful for coaches. You know, we just eight things that we think are, you know, important to make better practices. And there's a there's a lot more things, but we just kind of landed on these eight because um, we've probably had good results um, when these things have been done well and bad results when these things haven't been done well. And so we think if you can do these things, you're going to make better practices. So really appreciate you uh, unpacking all of that for us, Sam, being able to bounce ideas back and forth. It might be able to help coaches. Coaches, we'd love to hear what you think. Hit us up at hardwood underscore hustle and let us know if you've got some other ideas or some ideas that really stuck with you that you can implement into your practice. But he is Sam. I am TJ and we are the Hardwood Hustle. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Harwood Hustle, where we believe in the value of a coach. We want to bring you quality content and journey with you. Stay connected with us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us at Harwood underscore hustle. From the Harwood Hustle team, thanks again. We can't wait to be with you again next week. Mm-hmm.